All right, uh, so we are in Ezekiel, and uh, we've been uh, looking at a number of things, and this morning I want us to look at the signs of Ezekiel. One of the unique things about Ezekiel is that God had made him um, so that he couldn't speak. Um, for quite a bit of his life as a prophet, he, God would just seal his mouth shut so he couldn't talk. Now, normally when we think of a prophet, we think of somebody speaking uh, a word of prophecy. And so what God did through Ezekiel was he would make him silent and then he would have him act out things uh, to communicate with the people of Israel because they refused to listen to anything he said. So God decided he was going to get their attention some other way. And so he would have Ezekiel act out things. And so just a couple of verses here from Ezekiel chapter 3, 26 and 27. It says, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious people. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whoever will listen, let them listen. And whoever will refuse, let them refuse, for they are a rebellious people. And then Ezekiel chapter 24, 27, another time, it says, At that time your mouth will be opened, and you will speak with him, and no longer be silent. So you will be a sign to them that they will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 33 has another reference to God closing his mouth and opening it up again. So that's a little bit of the background of what I want to share with you today about these 10, there's 10 different signs or symbolic acts that Ezekiel acted out uh, to the Israelites. In, in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 6, God says to him, I have made you a sign. Not that he's talking to them, prophesying, but he's actually made him a sign to the Israelites. Um, and remember, um, the Israelites were absolutely convinced that even though um, these were the, the Israelites that he was prophesying to had already been taken into captivity and they were over in Babylon, but Jerusalem had not been destroyed yet. So these Israelites who were already in exile refused to believe that God was going to further um, discipline them. And that God would leave Jerusalem alone, that everything the prophets had said in Jerusalem was not true. And so they believed they were over in Babylon and that God was going to send them back and Jerusalem was going to be just fine and all of that. And they refused to believe Ezekiel when he kept telling them, no, God is not done disciplining um, Jerusalem. And so with these symbolic acts... Um, God says, you know, they won't listen to you, so I'm going to get their attention another way. And he made Ezekiel live housebound most of his life. And he lived in his house, and the only time he would go out, he would act in some symbolic way and do something strange. How would you like to be that prophet? That the only time you were released from your house is when you went outside and you did something weird to draw attention to yourself. And so all these other Jews would start to get, oh, there's, there he is again. He's come out of his house. What's he going to do now? And they would gather around to watch Ezekiel do something strange. And then they would sit around and talk about, what is this sign? What is he trying to tell us? 
And through the midst of that, they would get the idea or the gist of what God was trying to say to them. Well, again, it all had to do with Jerusalem because they absolutely refused to believe that God was going to discipline the Jews by destroying the temple and Jerusalem and all of that. This is how the Jews thought of Jerusalem. In Psalm 48, verse 2, it says, Beautiful in its loftiness, David writes this, The joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon in Mount Zion, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. So they just, you know, these people not only did had they lived in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was taking up residence in them. It was like the greatest thing in all of earth. And to them, Jerusalem had become more important to them than God himself. And because of that, they absolutely refused to believe that God would ever destroy Jerusalem, that he would ever allow the temple to be destroyed. The goal of every Jew around the world was just to get to Jerusalem at least once in their lifetime to celebrate the Passover because Jerusalem was so awesome and wonderful. And so it is into that group of people over in Babylon that Ezekiel prophesies, and he prophesies by these signs. The first one is this. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. They took some brick that had not been baked yet, kind of tiled, soft, uh, almost like Play-Doh, something like that. And Ezekiel is told by God to draw an image of Jerusalem on that tile. And so he, he gets down, squats down with this tile on the ground, draws this image of Jerusalem, and then God tells them to start playing with it and start pretending that you're at war. And so he brings in, uh, you know, he, he plays soldier, he builds ramparts around this city of Jerusalem, fortifications, and he makes it so that all the Jews there could see that you couldn't get in and you couldn't get out of Jerusalem, which is exactly what happened uh, to Jerusalem. And so he depicts this whole siege of Jerusalem by just playing as an adult. He comes out, you know, he's you know, 30 years old and he comes out and draws this picture on, on Plato and, and pretends to be at war. And all the other Jews are on watching him thinking, what is he doing here? Well, And it was just a sign. No, God has turned away from Jerusalem. The second one, uh, the second sign that he gives is in verses 4 through 8 in chapter 4. And this is even, this is amazing. If you stop and really think about this. Because we just read it and we go on and we don't really stop and ponder it. But Ezekiel is told by God to go outside and lay on his side for 390 days. I don't know about this. Do any of you just lay in bed and you just stay on one side all night long? He was told to lay there. We have 365 Days in a year. Stop and think about this. He is told to lay on his left side for 390 days. 
I do not want to be that prophet. Outside, the ground is hard. There's probably some hot days. There's probably some cold days. He's outside and he can't move off his left side. And it is to represent one day for every year that the Israelites had turned against God. From the time of, um, let me get the name right, um, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, his fourth year when he turned against God, all the way to the last king of Israel, 390 years. And so he laid on his side one day representing every year the Israelites had turned against God. And then, when he gets done that, God says, now go lay on your right side for 40 days. (laughs) Wow! Just stop and think about that. Now, we don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us real clearly. But we think that probably represents the 40 years the, the Israelites were in the wilderness. But the amazing thing there is this. He goes on to tell us in the scripture there that God would rather see his land devastated, his temple absolutely destroyed, the people killed or sent into exile, then for them to bear a false witness or a bad, be a bad reflection to the other people in the world. And I just want you to stop and think about everything God had invested in Jerusalem and the temple and all of that. And, and to God, that didn't mean anything compared to the witness of his people. One of the significant teachings of Ezekiel is that it is incredibly important to God, your witness for him in the world. That there isn't anything. Johnson Corners Wesleyan Church, this building here, means absolutely nothing to God. Your life is what matters to God. The temple didn't matter. Jerusalem didn't matter. The big wall that went around Jerusalem didn't matter. Nothing in Jerusalem mattered to God compared to the importance of the witness of God's people among pagan people. That is what really mattered to God. The third sign that Ezekiel does is he makes bread. Now, we, um, strange culture that we have, um, you can actually buy Ezekiel 4, 9 bread. Some of you probably have bought some. Uh, you can buy Ezekiel 4.9 cereal if you look hard enough. Or you can certainly go online and buy it. And, and it will be made of the, the five grains that are listed here in Ezekiel chapter 4 verse 9. And we think it's a great deal. I actually um, had a bite of the Ezekiel 4.9 cereal one time. And it actually tasted pretty good. Um, but... In Ezekiel's day, it was not something that you were supposed to think tasted good, just by the way. (laughs) We make a big deal out of it today, but in that day, it was to represent bread that was not good. It it, it represented bread that wasn't made from the best grains. And, And so the reason Ezekiel ground up, and so he went out of his house, and he took these five grains or vegetables, uh, wheat, barley, spelt, and then beans and lentils. How many of you have ever ground up beans to put in bread? 
Okay, yeah. Sandra, I expect that. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's those five things. And he takes and he grinds them up outside. And the Jews are watching him grind up this stuff. And, and it really represented a poor grade of bread. And he mixed it all together, put some yeast in it, and then he baked it. And God told him to bake it over human dung. And Ezekiel argued, he said, God, I can't do that. I have never done that. I would never do that. No priest would ever do that. And you know what? God listened to him. <laughs> but then God said, okay, you don't have to use human dung, but you have to use cow dung. No priest would ever do that either, but Ezekiel didn't argue with God on that one. He just did it. And he used cow dung mixed with straw, and he baked this bread. And, and those two things, using those five grains and using cow dung to bake it over, represented the extreme poverty and the lack of resources in the city of Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel was acting out for these Israelites over in captivity and saying, back in Jerusalem... That's what's going to happen to your brothers and your sisters that are living there. They are going to get so poor, they can't find food to eat, and they don't have fuel to even cook their bread and bake it. That's what he was trying to illustrate there. Now, the interesting thing is, all of this had been prophesied in Leviticus 26.26, that if the people broke the covenant, they would experience famine. Now, take this, listen to this. God had sent the Israelites into Israel where it was to be what? A land flowing with milk and honey. And the Israelites turned it into a land of famine. The best thing you can do for your nation is to be a godly person. The very best thing you can do for your nation, if you want your nation to be healthy, you need to be godly. As soon as you turn away from God, you begin to turn the wheels of prosperity to famine and, and scarcity. The best, the best patriotic thing you can do for your nation is to serve God as a living God. Then the next thing he does, and this is in Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1, uh, 1 through 17, God tells him to shave his head. But he doesn't tell him to take a, shave, uh, a razor. He tells him to take a sharp sword, shave his beard, shave his head, and keep it. Now that sword, instead of using a razor, and you know that sword represents the wrath of the of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming to Jerusalem and just butchering. And so he, he he's trying to give the picture that when when Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, he's not going to be nice about it. It's not going to be pretty. He's going to take a sword and just hash and just make a mess of Jerusalem. And so he gives this picture, and Ezekiel, he shaves his head, and he shaves his beard, and he keeps it. And then God tells him to weigh the hair and to split it evenly. 
The first hair, the first third of his hair, he takes and he makes a little fire. And he burns the, burns it up. And that's to symbolize the Jews who were left in Jerusalem that were killed and destroyed by famine and pestilence. Then he takes a second group of hair. And with that hair, he uses the sword, his sharp sword that he cut his own hair with. And he just chops that hair all to pieces. And that is to represent those who flew out, the Jews that flew out of Jerusalem, and what, you know, the sword of the Babylonians, how they were going to get killed. And indeed, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came, about a third of the, Jew, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem were killed by famine and pestilence. About a third of them were struck down by the sword as they tried to get away from Jerusalem. And then the third hair was scattered by the wind. Um, and it represented those who did get away and did scatter, but they scattered all over the face of the earth. But then God says, before you put that last third group of hair and blow it to the wind, put a strand in your pocket and save it. And that was to represent the remnant that God was going to protect and bring back to the land of Israel. So... Um, you, you, you picture here God's justice, and, and he says, you know, if I'm going to punish and discipline the, the pagan nations, I will hold my people also. And if my people who are called by my name and living in Jerusalem, the holy city, if they want to commit sin, I will discipline them just like I will discipline Babylon and the Ammonites and the Moabites and all these other nations, I will discipline my people. We don't hear this very much in our culture today, but I want to tell you what, friends. If you think that you can live a Christian life and never have any fear of the wrath of God, you are sorely mistaken. God holds his people accountable for the way they live their life. God was willing to even discipline the Jews living in Jerusalem and destroy his holy city for the sake of his name and his reputation among the nations. God wants us to recognize that as one of the main teachings of Ezekiel. That's why it's not preached very much um, in our culture today. Then another sign. The next time Ezekiel comes out of his house, he pretends to be fleeing. And so he pretends to be one of these Jews living in Jerusalem, and he gathers up a knapsack like he's being taken into exile. And so he, you know, he puts on a backpack, he fills it with all kinds of stuff that he would want to take to Babylon with him, and he gets it all ready, and then he, you know, kind of a mud brick house and he digs a hole in it and he sneaks out with his backpack on and he runs off. And so all these other Jews watch him do go through that whole um, activity there and watch him flee. Uh, uh, and it's just, again, another sign that he says, you Israelites, you got to know that your brothers and sisters, they... Just because they haven't been taken into captivity yet, they will be taken into captivity. The next time, Ezekiel goes out of his house and he eats a meal, a bread, 
and water. And while he eats the bread, and this is in chapter 12, by the way, chapter 12, um, 1 through 7 on Ezekiel fleeing, and then 17 through 20 on Ezekiel eating this bread. And as he eats the bread, he is supposed to just tremble like he's in total fear. And then he's supposed to shake as he drinks the water and shudder. And so he goes outside, he eats this bread, Again, bread that represents poverty and just the end of times. And, and he just sits there with this total panic on his face as he eats it, watching to see what, what's coming in this horrible event that's coming towards him. And as he takes a sip of water, he just shudders. And so that's, that's what happens as he sits there. He does all of that, and it's to illustrate the fear that their brothers and sisters who were still in Jerusalem, who still believed that God was never going to touch Jerusalem, that they were going to come to that kind of fear in their life. And then Ezekiel chapter 21, skipping all the way, several chapters here, to where Ezekiel has the next symbolic act that he does, where he just sits and he groans and sighs. Because God says in the first couple of verses there, um, that it says, and say to the land of Israel, thus saith the Lord, behold, I am against thee, and I will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. And Ezekiel goes out to prophesy that when the Babylonians come to Jerusalem, that they are not going to sit and sort through which ones of the Jews were really faithful and which ones were not. That the, the Babylonians were going to come with their sword, and it would be the sword of the Lord, but it would be the Babylonians using it. And he would just destroy whether you were righteous, a righteous Jew or a wicked Jew. Jerusalem was going to be totally destroyed. And sometimes we need to know that when God's justice and wrath is poured out, that, you know, he doesn't sort through. (laughs) His wrath will just clean house. And that's exactly what he was trying to communicate here. And so Ezekiel sits and he pours out, he grieves and mourns because he's representing the heart of God. For especially for the righteous Jews who have been living in Jerusalem and and his heart for them because he's grieving that the righteous Jews got destroyed along with the wicked Jews while the Babylonians just came in and crushed Jerusalem. God always mourns when the righteous are injured. And he wanted them to know that. He wanted them to know that even God was sovereign and God was just and holy and all of that, that God still had a heart and that God was grieved over what was going to happen to Jerusalem and to the people in it. Then there's another time when Ezekiel comes out of his house and this time instead of drawing a city of of Jerusalem and playing soldier on it, He comes out of his house and he draws a map. And in that map, he draws, um, he draws the map from Babylon 
and it comes down and then it goes two different ways. And one, on one way, it goes to Ammon. And, and this is uh, in Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 18 and following there. But it, it goes over towards Ammon and then the other one goes towards Jerusalem. And so in this map he draws, Babylon comes and he has this choice to make. Will I go and, and conquer Ammon because the Babylonians were taking over the whole world? And so it was just a matter of timing. Which way will I go now? I can go wipe out the Ammonites or I can go and wipe out Jerusalem. And, and so he comes down to this fork in the road and, and Ezekiel acts out the Babylonians trying to decipher and discern uh, which way to go here. Which, what should we do? And so they get to that fork in the road and, and they go through that whole process of trying to figure it out. And, they, and the Babylonians consult their idols on which way to go. And finally they decide, no, we're not going to deal with the Ammonites right now. We're going to go down and destroy Jerusalem. And so he pictures them going down and taking up battering rams and rams and siege works and all kinds of things and building a fortress around Jerusalem and just absolutely destroying the city of Jerusalem. And then there's another very interesting uh, picture that Ezekiel makes um, in Ezekiel chapter 22, starting in verse 17. Where Ezekiel pictures, he comes out of his house again, and he has, he starts this little furnace. And he puts all kinds of metals in it, and he stirs them up, and he gets it really hot, and he pictures, uh, the metal in it, and the dross being removed as you, uh, the smelting furnace, you get it down so that you, you take out all the impurities. And, and this was, um, interesting because, the people of Jerusalem were pictured as the dross that was taken out of the pure pot of metals. And, and you say, well, okay, now what does that mean? And that's exactly what these Jews in Babylon were saying. You mean the our brothers and sisters who are still in Jerusalem, they're the dross, they're the bad stuff, they're the impure part that you're draining off the kettle of metal? And that's exactly what he's saying. See, those Jews who hadn't been taken in, they thought they were the righteous ones. They thought the bad Jews had been taken into exile, and so they were good, and God just loved them, and they could do whatever they wanted. And even though God had already taken these other Jews into captivity, they assumed that they didn't have to change. They kept their idolatry. They didn't change their life at all, even though God had already disciplined a large section of the Jews, and even though many of them had been hauled into captivity, along with Ezekiel and Daniel, and at least 10,000 others with Ezekiel when he went into captivity, the Jews remaining in Jerusalem just didn't change their life at all. They just stayed consistently living as though nothing had changed at all. And God said, my people who are living in Jerusalem are like the dross that you pull out of a kettle of metal that you're melting to get rid of the impurity. And he said, I am coming to destroy Jerusalem to get rid of all the impurities in my people. 
Whoa, that's pretty heavy stuff that God was saying to to the nation of of Israel and, and to those Jews over in Babylon and to the Jews right there in Jerusalem. The leaders, the priests, the false prophets, and the people were as wicked as ever, even though God had already exercised discipline. Injustice and idolatry was everywhere. And then you go a little bit further in that chapter. And you come to one of the favorite verses in Ezekiel. And there aren't a lot of favorite verses in Ezekiel. But you come to one of the favorite ones in Ezekiel in in verses 30 and 31. And it reminds us that the Lord is looking for prophets to stand for the moral law. And he's looking for intercessors who will pray for our nation and cry out to God for mercy and for a return to holiness. And you see that in this key verse of Ezekiel where it says, I look for someone, this is God speaking, I look for someone among them in Jerusalem who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads, as they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Wow. God wants you and I, as his people, to speak the truth in our culture, but also to intercede for our culture. Now, I believe it's the seventh one I'm down to this morning. In chapter 24, one of the worst things Ezekiel ever went through in his life, if not the worst thing Ezekiel ever went through in his life, was his wife dying. Now, if you go through the scriptures, it's never a good thing to be married to a prophet, ever. You won't find any prophet's wife that had a rosy life. Ezekiel was no different. And Ezekiel had a horrible time um, because part of one of the signs that God gave Ezekiel was to have his wife die. He got up one morning. He went to uh, the Israelites. He gave them his morning message at, at a time when he was speaking. And then in the evening, his wife suddenly died and was taken away from him. And he was told that morning that his wife was going to die. And remember, I've already told you, he was only 35 years old at this time when his wife died. 35 years old. His wife is about 35 years old. And she just ups and dies. And he buried her the next morning. Now, in that culture, that was normal because of the heat. Um, you, you and, and you didn't have the embalming processes that we had. You had to bury people the next day, especially in terrible heat. And so he buried her the next morning. And then God tells him that he cannot respond like all the other people do to his wife's death. He cannot grieve. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, when somebody died, one of the ways you grieved was really, really, so everyone knew you were grieving. You got loud about it. You yelled and you, you know, you shrieked and you did all kinds of things and everybody knew you were really into it. <laughs> and he had to be silent about his wife dying. 
The other thing is when people brought in food, he was not allowed to eat any of it. So he couldn't enjoy any of the food that people brought uh, to him when his wife dies. His wife had been the joy of his life. She's suddenly taken away, and that was to represent Jerusalem, who had been the joy of the Israelites. <laughs> and suddenly, on August 14, 586 B.C., suddenly Jerusalem would be taken away, demolished, destroyed, nothing left of it, um, as Jerusalem set it to fire and destroyed it. And God said the Israelites were not to weep, because they should have expected that all along. And then the last one, number 10. From Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, verses 15 through 17. This is a really neat one. This is one, this is the only one of the 10 that happens after Jerusalem has been destroyed. The first nine all happened before Jerusalem has been destroyed and, and Ezekiel still trying to convince, God's still trying to convince the Israelites in Babylon that he's still going to destroy Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem's been destroyed. Those people are destroyed. And these people over here don't know what's happened other than Jerusalem has been totally destroyed. Their relatives, all of that, they don't have a clue about. It's just utter destruction. And God gives them this prophecy, this symbolic act that Ezekiel does, and he tells them to go outside and get two sticks and hold them together, to name one stick Judah and the other stick Ephraim, and, and that he was to join them together and make them one stick. Now, the meaning of that is that God is going to take these two nations, Judah, Ephraim represents Israel, Judah and Israel, and make them one nation again. Now, if you remember your Bible history from Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you will remember that when they went into the, when the Israelites went into the promised land, they went in as one nation. And under Solomon's son Rehoboam, they split into two nations, Judah and Israel. About the same time that the the nation started to go into sin and drift away from God. And God gives the, the Israelites over in Judah who were totally distraught, or over in Babylon, totally distraught over what had just happened in Babylon, or in, in Jerusalem. He, he tells them, you know, God is going to undo 390 years someday. And he's going to bring those two nations, when he brings you all back, scattered all around the world, when he brings you back, he's going to bring you back, not as two nations, not as Judah and Israel, but he's going to bring you back as one nation, which happened in 1948, in some of our lifetimes. And he says, they will be my people, and I will be their God. So what are we supposed to know from this? Well, first of all, there isn't anything in all the world that is more sacred to God than your witness. There isn't anything you can put your hand on that is sacred, more sacred to God than your witness in the world. Secondly, God will use every means available to get our attention. 
And if he can't get it to us by speaking to us, he'll have some fool go out and act it out for us. <laughs> God will try to get our attention and, and call us to repentance. Um, thirdly, God holds us, those who are called by his name, to a higher standard than he holds the world to. We need to be different. Fourthly, that God is merciful in restoration. He always, he never disciplines without wanting to restore and bring us back to wholeness and health. So what do we do? Well, first of all, in terms of being doing, we need to be sensitive to what God is speaking. And a lot of times, these, these, the Jews, they really thought they were right. They were sure they were right. But they were wrong. So you and I need to be sensitive to what God is saying to us, even if we are convinced we're right. Because <laughs> sometimes when we are convinced we are right, God wants to say something different to us. And we need to be sensitive and responsive to that. Secondly, we need to be people who stand for what is holy. And we need to stand for truth in our culture. We need to be good witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we need to be people who intercede. God wants to raise up a people who will pray for our nation. And who will pray for a return to righteousness and holiness and all of that in our nation. And God wants you to pray. God wants me to pray a lot more than I have been doing. God wants us to pray for our nation that we can see a revival and a turnaround in our nation.